Welcome to Democratically 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the ongoing U.S. 2020 election. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. Before we start today's episode, I want to invite you to a special live free online event that I'm doing especially for my podcast listeners um, in the, on the Saturday following Thanksgiving. So um, if you click on the link that's in the show notes for this episode or at the top of my Twitter feed at Karen J-R, K-A-R-I-N-J-R, you should be able to find the Eventbrite link to this free online event. Um, basically I'm creating this event. It's going to feature some of your and my favorite podcast guests, obviously friend of the pod, Emma Burnell, um, former guest and stand-up comedian, Eric McElroy is going to be doing a short set of stand-up comedy. We will feature a special panel with former podcast guests, Jonathan Kopp and Marcella Mulholland, um, as well as many others. And I will, of course, well, I don't know about many others, some others. <laughs> um, and I will be doing a special what I learned from the 2020 election, um, super quick presentation of some of my key takeaways um, and a few thoughts for going forward. I really hope you can join us. Um, this is meant as a way for us to come together as a community and just get to know each other a little bit, have a chat. Um, this podcast is within a couple of months of coming to a conclusion. So I thought I should give you guys a chance to um, get together as a group before before that happens, um, and and celebrate American Thanksgiving with uh, some gratitude and uh, and togetherness. So I look forward to that. I hope you can join us. So I am delighted to welcome William Kajani to the Democratically 2020 podcast today. William is a political um, betting analyst for Star Sports Betting, um, and as such, is intimately familiar with a lot of the numbers behind the election. William, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm thrilled to get you on the podcast. Um, so I thought a really good place to kick off our conversation today was was in your wheelhouse, the the world of political betting. Um, people talk a lot about the the betting markets and how they perform relative to other things like polls and so forth. Um, in your experience, how how well did you guys do this time? So the key thing is firstly to define well. Um, because there's the right result for the pollsters and there's the right result for the bookmakers. Got it. Generally speaking, um, punters have been very clued up to Joe Biden's chances for quite a long time. When it was a two-horse race properly, so when the nominations had been settled, um, Trump actually was very competitive in the betting heat, but as the summer went into the winter and the polls showed a steady and clear uptick for Biden, um, punters really began to see a disparity between what forecast models indicated, so forecast models from, say, decision desks or 538 or The Economist, um, compared with what odds you could get through in the betting market. Um, we were most commonly 4 to 11 about Biden. Now, to mm -hmm. put that in pure percentage terms, that's 73.53%. Every forecast model out there, um, at least all of the big ones, there was one outlier, had Biden at an 86% chance and above. That sort of disparity is just not very often really seen in a presidential election, not usually seen in gambling, truly, to be honest, when you're doing it on 
an event that isn't, say, a horse race or a football game, where, in theory, the elements of chance should be removed. And, you know, you're not going to miss a field goal on a presidential election. So punters very quickly clued onto that. They backed Biden big. They were correct, but we thankfully managed to do something called laying Trump. So we got plenty here in the book, and we did okay yeah. um, on that, considering although plenty of people won backing the Republicans for states. Yeah, I think that's the thing, because although Biden is the clear winner of the presidential election, I think the big takeaway um, from the from the election is that although it was closer than expected in the polls, Biden won convincingly in all mm. the critical swing states, but not so much down ballot. Um, in Senate and especially in the House races, things didn't necessarily go as expected. So what were some of the hot races that were attracting interesting bets um, in uh, in the down ballot races? So we didn't bet on the House elections. I believe we did bet on, we had trebles basically. So it was fairly popular. You could have gotten 11 to two. Um, mm-hmm. So two pounds you put on, 11 you'd have got back. Um, for the Democrats to take all three branches, which is something I'm sure we'll talk about later that can still happen, technically. Um, So you haven't paid out those bets yet? We haven't paid out those bets yet. Because of the length of the counts, some bets are still waiting to be settled, purely because of the length of the counts. So, for instance, total overall vote share is something that can still change because of a million or so ballots in Westchester um, still outstanding. Um, but we've settled most markets and we have paid out on Biden winning yeah. um, because he is the winner. Just, so, to <laughs> just to be absolutely clear. So, no, that's really interesting, though. So from from your point of view, you're doing it on the basis of the reported counts. You you wouldn't like try to wait for the certified result from a particular state or the Electoral College reporting. You're 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 like, we're done <laughs> once yeah, it's counted. Yeah. We would be, I mean, first of all, we trust projection data, um, yeah. although we would, we would wait, basically, for those states to be officially called. Usually, by this time, anyway, we have a concession. Um, yeah. This isn't really a normal occurrence. Um, also, in terms of the Electoral College being certified, that's what Betfred Exchange is waiting out for. Um, but we know, let's be honest, that Biden has won those states, and we also... Um, we were aware here that these recounts or whatever, they could change some ballots, some regularities or whatever, it could be found. They will not change enough to overturn a state. And even if they overturn one or two states, they're not going to change enough to t- overturn the balance of the electoral college. Yeah. Like most bookmakers, we paid pretty shortly after when it was confirmed and called by the media. So we call a week or so after the election. When Biden yeah. passed 270, we consider that unassailable. Well, there you go. So betting marketplaces, a reality-based community. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, not a given in the White House these days. But to come back to come to come back so to come back to my question about um the down ballot races, um, did you take bets on individual Senate races? We didn't, but we are taking bets on the runoffs. Right. So we've got the Republicans pretty heavily favoured in those. In Georgia. Interesting. Yeah. And this is interesting because, once again, the betting markets are at odds with the polls. The polls have this as a very tight race. Um, yeah. The latest poll from 
Atlanta, um, so FOX5 Atlanta, inside Advantage, um, did the methodology. They have Warnock with a 1% lead over Kelly Leffler. They have David Perdue and John Ossoff tied 49%. That's going to be another really interesting test, basically, of state-level polling, which didn't have the greatest night, yeah. um, albeit that quite a few of these races were tied, and what the market generally believes. And also, generally, sort of um, the way things have gone previously in Georgia. You know, in 2008, um, there was Democratic candidate, didn't go down by all that much in Obama's election, mm. was tanked in the runoff. Um, generally speaking, you know, it is a pretty red state. Yes, Biden took it. Um, I would argue really exceptional circumstances. It'll be interesting to see if that translates down ballots. And also, this will be a litmus test for lots of the individual factors that define this election, right? Um, such as voter registration, youth turnout, Donald Trump being present on the ballot or not. All of that stuff is going to be a fascinating asset test here. So I think it'll be a really interesting market. Interesting. Yeah. It, it will be a really interesting one. I think it's, you know, let, let's get into the Georgia race because it, it, it's a really tricky one to project in a lot of ways. Um, you know, first of all, you've got compared to a presidential race, a kind of top top ticket presidential race, which drives massive turnouts on both sides. Now you've got a runoff, which traditionally has a much smaller turnout. So it's hard to know whether you should whether you should assume that the trends we saw in the vote in November are going to hold true in January on January 5th when those two runoff races are held um so i think the first thing is it worth just maybe having a look at should we look together at what the results were from from the November race and see if that Absolutely. says anything because john so let's take john ossoff versus david purdue David Perdue is obviously the, the incumbent elected Republican senator. Kelly Loeffler, we'll talk about in a bit, she was appointed rather than elected. That was a really close race. I mean, it was, you know, he got 49.7% of the vote. Ossoff got 48%. So it was within a couple points. Even to go that far, to come as close as he did, Ossoff had to underperform Joe Biden by about 100,000 votes. And there were about 2.3% of the votes that were taken away from, quote unquote, taken away, if you, if you think that they would have gone to David Perdue. But there were 2.3% of the vote that went to the Libertarian candidate. And there weren't any other major Democrats in on the ballot, even though Georgia allows kind of, it, it's a sort of jungle primary or jungle election, basically, where anybody, anybody who wants to run um, from both parties, you can have multiple people from the same party on the ballot. Um, so, so Ossoff to win the next election would have to outperform his current race in a lower turnout election. How would you judge that? Do you think that that's a, that's an achievable goal? I think it's achievable, um, but I think it's also going to be very difficult. Um, that it's possible. It's possible that there might have been a slight. Biden bounce for Democrats down ballot, which didn't materialise, by the way, across the rest of the country. Certainly not in the numbers, I think, most people were expecting in the conventional wisdom. Yeah. Um, but the interesting thing about this race, and what I think makes it pretty hard to call, is the amount of competing factors here. And we're working with data um, that, you know, in general, whilst I think we can trust most methodology all the time. We're working with data that has a bit of uncertainty 
to it. Uh, for instance, exit polling took people who went and voted in person, not people who voted by mail, which they did in record numbers. Um, there's also plenty of internal factors here. Um, for instance, you know, Trump being on or off the ballot is an interesting factor here. People generally appear to have split their ticket. Um, the Senate races tell us that people split tickets between voting Biden to end the chaos in the White House, but having a Republican as senator to prevent as a firewall, basically, yeah. um, from what people perceive to be a Democratic Party that I think is looked upon as far more left than it actually is from taking um, total command. Um, also, I think by this time uh, in January, or by the time even that you have voter registration, um, the coronavirus will be a bigger factor even if it wasn't the election. Just in the sense that, and I, I don't want to appear overly cynical, but this clearly played a big part in the presidential election. I think it might have been a key factor. Cases are rising. They're rising in every county in the country. They're doing so at a still exponential rate. You have a situation where I think like eight in 10 people are gonna have Thanksgiving um, nationally. Um, there, there doesn't appear to be much compliance social distancing rules and you've got a really precarious public health situation. And there's a big tug of war, something which I'm not necessarily sure people in Britain appreciate, but there's a bigger tug of war between restrictions and your natural way of life, whatever, in places like Georgia, I think, than in pretty much the rest of the world. Generally speaking, really high case numbers, really high amounts of people in hospital, hasn't helped Republicans. It seems to have crossed the party lines, even if people don't take the virus seriously, mm. or or generally as seriously if they're Republican compared to Democrat. It will be interesting to see what a few more weeks will do to that in a political context. You know, the runoff voting day is the 5th of January. That's a hell of a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, not to be not to be awful, but coronavirus can definitely get worse and cases are on the rise. Um, January, as you say, it's, it's hard to know. It's it's funny, like in political time, <laughs> a couple months between uh, November and January feels like a long way off in this world because so many things can happen. Um, and we don't know what's going to happen in terms of, you know, pre the President Trump, which we'll come on to talk to in a little bit, but his ongoing shenanigans around um, suggesting electoral impropriety that doesn't exist. It's it's curious to to contemplate how that might affect Georgia Republican voters. Um, I think I can see it either way. So you can argue maybe Georgia Republican voters, because Trump is no longer on the ballot, um, might be less inclined to come and vote. Perhaps Georgia Republican voters might calculate that if they believe the president, that the voting system is ripe with fraud, might calculate that it's not worth casting a ballot at all because their votes don't get counted according to the president's theory of the case. Or you can imagine a scenario in which um, conversely Republican voters feel doubly determined to make sure that they, we hold the Senate as a way of punishing um, the false allegations of election impropriety that they believe in. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, there's just a lot of unknown unknowns, aren't there? Or known unknowns. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and it's a really tricky race to call, and it's interesting because we've gone off with the Republicans at quite a short betting price. Um, yeah. You know, we are we are five to two on. So basically, if you had to, if you put like um, five pounds on, you'd win 
two back on both Republican contenders, so both Purdue and Leffler. Right. Um, now, don't get me wrong, I'd give the Republicans sort of the general balance, I think. I'd have them starting out ahead in a runoff, but... But there's just, a lot of uncertainty. There is a lot of uncertainty. I mean, and also, Leffler is a dyed-in-the-wall, absolutely dyed-in-the-wall Trump backer. Yeah. Um, if there is to be any sort of big effect either way um, with Trump, either through his supporters or his detractors, it would seem not unreasonable to think that she will be either the beneficiary um, or not of that sort of effect. Yeah, well, possibly. But then you've got, I mean, so let's talk about the Leffler-Warnock race, because that's a really interesting one again. So in her November race, Kelly Leffler was facing off not only against Raphael Warnock, um, who we'll talk about in a sec, but also against Doug Collins, um, who's a big, close ally of the president and a Republican because of Georgia's very strange voting system. And he pulled away a fair number of votes from her, I think. I'm just going to the numbers, but I think it looks like, um, um, where was it? Yeah, so Collins pulled out nearly 20% of the vote. Loeffler got 259 Warnock only had 32.9%. So he, in the November round of voting, and there's no reason to believe that it will necessarily be exactly the same in January, uh, Warnock arguably underperformed Ossoff and... Kelly Loeffler, although she underperformed, um, you know, Doug Perdue or Dave Perdue significantly, if you add up all the Republican votes in her race, there are more Republican votes once you calculate the, the Collins vote. I'm just curious about, like, because you said the odds, you've put odds at both as being, you know, favoring the Republican, but not by a huge margin. Do you see the Warnock race differently than the Ossoff race, or do you think that they'll they're likely to go very much in parallel with each other? I think um, it's likely that you'll be quite connected because of the unique situation. Yes. Yeah. The reason, in part, that Georgia is being blitzed with so much money and so much attention is because the Senate is in the balance here, and it literally is going to end up defining, I think, much of Biden's first term, if he has even the chance to do stuff, which basically is, um, let's say, emergency bills on COVID or executive orders. That changed the political outlook for America. And I know, I know this sounds really cliche to say, but it changes the political outlook for America for the foreseeable future, especially mm. at a time when some sort of COVID recovery process, assuming all goes well with the vaccine and touch what it does, some yeah. sort of COVID recovery process would need to start. Um, and those and those crucial votes in the Senate are massive, not only for that, but also for Biden's plans on climate, should he have them, and Biden's plans on the economy stimulus, should he have them. Um, and down the line, what Biden can achieve is like to have a big effect on 2024, whether he runs or not. So. My feeling is that the two races will be tied together, um, especially also as that's what Republican votes are being able to do anyway. Right? The yeah. final one effect only really works if you tie the two together. And I think that's certainly the plan. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point, especially considering that the voters in the November election had no way of knowing that they'd be vote that the, that their elections would be decisive on the Senate level for Senate control. Um, so it's a really different cast now. 
And also, actually, if you look at the campaigning behavior of the candidates, I guess the four candidates, um, um, both candidates and both sides, each of them seem to have formed some sort of joint activity with the other. So Ossoff and Warnock are very much running as a pair, um, you know, joint fundraising, joint joint appearances, and Leffler and Purdue the same. So it, it does seem like they're treating it that way. I think on, from an Ossoff Warnock point of view, it's interesting to just point out. So Warnock is they're very different candidates. So Ossoff is a um, a young candidate, young man. He's Jewish, um, comes from a sort of political background. Warnock is uh, African American, also relatively young, um, but he's the pastor of um, a church in Atlanta, which is the same church that Martin Luther King preached at. So he comes very much from the civil rights and the African American community. Um, and of course, it's been the increase in sort of the ability to reach out to minority voters that's helped turn Georgia um, blue for Biden, um, and famously Stacey Abrams and her plan. Um, but if you look at the numbers, although African-American vote was up in this election, voters of all demographics were up in the election. And actually, the African-American vote, even though it was increased, was a smaller share of the electorate because everybody increased even more. So it will be curious, again, to see whether... Democrats can hold on to their improved performance in African-Americans and possibly the tide of Republicans might recede or whether that same intensity across all demographics is going to is going to keep 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 carrying on in January. There are so many possible ways that it could go, each of which seem pretty plausible to me. So it's really I wouldn't bet, I wouldn't bet on this race because I wouldn't know which way to go. <laughs> what about you? Um it's a tricky one. My feeling is, based on the polls purely, that the Democrats, one Democrat is probably at least too big. Yeah. Um, I know there's usually not a historical precedent that goes against this, but generally speaking, in the margin of error race, and that is what we have, according to all the best polling, you shouldn't really have one candidate being odds on. Um, now, in the two-horse race, um, five to two on isn't, you know, it's, it's not as short as, say, Joe Biden was in context. But yeah. I, I would say that I think some people will come possibly for the Democrats. I think some betters will want to back the Democrats um, because they might see an opportunity to have a bet. Again, like with Biden being reversed, he has a better chance of succeeding um then we give that chance in, in a sense you know people generally if they spot a disparity between the data and what the odds tell them they'll go for it um my feeling is that there needs to be material change for the democrats to take one of those seats but that said there's plenty of uncertainty and i think there is enough for that material change and um for all that republicans have to catch advantage in terms of tv adverts in Georgia, they clearly have a get-out-the-vote operation that works. Yeah. People know what they're doing. And the great benefit for them is that they don't need to change an awful lot at short notice. It's basically, we go again this time for the Senate. I think um, they should feel reasonably hopeful about being able to really get a high turnout. The only issue is um, we know that the Republicans will have that too. 
And I think there will be a fear factor, which will be very hard for them to overcome. Because much, I think, of the Democrat um, underperformance down ballot yeah. was that fear factor. Um, especially with stuff like, and I don't want to use this as the only example, but especially with stuff like defund the police. Yeah. Um, or or little energy concerns, or just indeed culture wars, actually. Um, it was all very potent. Um, I don't think it's impossible for Democrats to be that. You know, um, like even Joe Biden was being painted as this sort of wolf in sheep's clothes and clothing where to the point where people literally thought that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was going to run the country um, <laughs> from January. <laughs> but I do think that will be a key factor. I, I, I think there will need to be a plan for taking on the firewall defence, the take, for taking on the line of argument which goes okay so you may not like Trump but he's not going to be in the White House come January um are you going to let these people run the Senate yeah and American voters do often prefer to vote for divided government um which I think they're wrong about I want to be clear I think that's a bad choice because what they're voting for is for um gridlock and and dysfunction and the inability to hold anyone to account politically because Everybody can always say, oh, they stopped me from doing it. So I think it's a bad strategy, but American voters often t do tend to split their votes specifically in ways that cause um, divided government. So, yeah, so I think you're you're probably right. Um, I, I personally instinctively feel like Ossoff has a better chance than Warnock just based on the, the November out outcome. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and And I think... You know, it, and we need both. So the, the the lift for Democrats is really heavy, basically, is what I'm saying. That, you know, individually, I think each of them has a reasonable chance to win their race. I think that the odds that we will shoot the moon and get both races um, are pretty slim. So speaking, we should fight for it. But speak, Speaking of that, I believe... Um, well, we're... Uh, sorry, I don't believe. I know we are five to one on the Republicans maintaining control of the Senate in some fashion. Um, so that sort of shows the mountain decline figuratively yeah. for Democrats to take both. Maybe I'll put some money on Democrats to retake the Senate just because it's unlikely enough that it would make me... Not that I would, I would be ecstatically happy if we got it. So, you know... Maybe maybe we'll do it as a show of faith. I don't know. Um, great. So so we talked about Georgia Senate. Let's talk a little bit. Um, as I alluded to um, at the beginning of our conversation about the president's ongoing shenanigans, the malarkey, the, the nonsense. Um, president Trump has still not conceded election. Um, he is still. Um, engaging in a wide array of activities, some of which are just standard legal challenges, mm -hmm. some of which are entering into the grounds of what feels like a overtly anti-democratic attempt to overthrow the election results by, for example, urging um, state legislators to intervene in ways that they're not constitutionally allowed to do to throw out the vote count um, in favor of him. 
He's, um, we had an incident this week in which the Wayne County, Michigan, um, board of, uh, sort of board of elections initially failed to certify the result of the election. And then a few hours later, after massive public pressure, they, they did certify that, um, but you know, they, they were deadlocked. Then the two Republicans on the committee who, um, had initially objected then said that they wanted to rescind their decision to certify the election. President Trump has now invited some of these uh, Michigan state senators to the White House for a conversation which is happening today, um, which causes lots of concerns. His overt request is that they, again, overturn the election outcome in favor of one for him. There's a lot of fear, fear and understandable anxiety around this. And to be clear, it seems to me that the president is indeed trying to use undemocratic means to overturn the outcome of an American election to keep him in power and that he is using the power of the presidency to do that. Having said all of that, I see no evidence that this is likely to be successful on any level. What do, what are you seeing? I'm seeing what you're seeing. Um, and the danger I see, or the biggest danger I think to ordinary Americans is the disruption in terms of the transition, yeah, um, namely for the coronavirus rollout um, or for the coronavirus vaccine rollout, although I'm sure there'll be lots of other things as well. But I think the biggest danger, to be honest with you, is that Biden and his team can't get hands on important classified briefings. Um, I saw a story earlier um, suggesting that played a role in 9-11, um, the sort of shortened transition post um, Florida decision, um, apparently taking sort of Bush's and Cohen team off point um, regards to intelligence. Now, the Biden team is pretty well connected within Washington. You know, they do have a lot of friends there. And Obama had a lot of friends in the National Security Department. I think the Biden team is going to make extensive use of that. Um, but every day that Emily Murphy doesn't certify these results is a lot of time lost, uh, particularly given that the Trump administration was sort of an administration in name only, like they did not really run Washington. You know, loads of positions were left unstaffed. Um, it, it was barely believable that they had a cabinet. Yes. Um, that, I think, is the big danger for Americans, the sort of knock-on physical effect of Biden having to play catch-up in the US to the White House in the middle of a pandemic anyway. Yeah. Um, but in terms of what you're seeing, yeah, I think everybody is seeing it. It's interesting. Some polls say a majority of Americans see Biden as the election winner, but others point to a different reading where a lot of Republicans don't believe in the result. Whatever you might think of Trump and whatever you might think of basically the futility of um of, of these insane sort of Venezuela stole the election through Hugo Chavez's ghost stories. Um, <laughs> Which sounds like a joke, but that actually literally is what they're alleging. It, 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 literally, it literally happened. And it's not a great time for me to forget um, the second name of President Trump's personal attorney, not Rudy Giuliani, but Sidney Powell. Sidney Powell. Um, but there is a serious point here, which is basically that three, there are 300 or so million Americans, give or take. Um, and 
I think 150 million or so will be voted. If even a tenth of them don't believe in the election result, you have a serious long-term problem. Yeah. And there are reliable estimates suggesting that, frankly, more than one in ten people overall don't believe Biden won the election. Yeah. It's a serious, serious problem. Um, particularly as, at some point, um, if America is to improve its coronavirus response, you need some public buy-in. Democrats will have public buy-in, but they've already been taking those precautions anyway. That's what the polling data tells us. The polling data tells us, and I'm not trying to be portion of blame here, but it tells us that Republicans haven't been taking it as seriously. They haven't been taking precautions as seriously. Yeah. Exponential spread, you need to have public buy-in. Biden's biggest challenge as a president is probably how he overcomes that problem. Yeah. I really don't know what the answer is to it. Yeah, I think it's fair to say we do have a big problem. Um, it's just simply the case that at least a sizable minority of American voters do not live in the same factual reality as the rest of us. And it's this problem of, and it's something I've been worried about since Trump first running, to be honest, because, you know, it is a conspiracy-led campaign. And it has been from the start. I mean, Donald Trump got his break in American politics with a false accusation that President Obama was not born in this country. Um, and that's been his M.O. ever since. He believes in things with no evidence if they are convenient to him. And he has led a party that always had, I mean, frankly, there's conspiratorial thinking on in every political party um, on the outskirts, but he has moved the conspiracy, conspiratorial fact-free part of the party into the heart of the power center. Yeah. And it's very hard to see a way out from that um, unless something radically changes. Because yeah. right now, everybody's incentives are lined up to keep this keep this story going right like the the yeah. the, the 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 false uh, the false narrative is serving a lot of people's interests even though um in the short term even though in the long term it, it's hurting it's hurting republicans too yeah absolutely um the the really interesting thing here from a political standpoint um i should say because otherwise your comments will sound uh, a bit callous it's basically this is sort of a democracy acid test right yeah. And I guess what we're looking for is basically, can this actually longer term hurt the GOP as in the brand? Because you've had politicians, and again, this is a political view, it's a personal one, but you've had politicians do some pretty extraordinary things in that party and the parties recovered. Probably easier to do with a two-party system, right? But um, it's managed to come through some pretty astounding stuff. Um, I know politicians have both all voted for Iraq, but it survived Iraq. It blatantly has come back from the, finan the financial crisis. It has come back from lots of stuff before that. Now, you have a position where pretty much officially the GOP is still backing Trump. It's not a certified thing, right? But if their Twitter account is saying he won the election by a landslide and they're happy to have their name into it in that PR sense, the party is still very much being run by that wing of it. 
by that Trumpist wing, um, which is very sort of populist in nature, very brash and bold and very much willing to test and break rules. It'll be interesting to see post-electoral college meetups, so the 14th December, as I understand it, do high-ranking senators still not concede to Biden? Mm. It, does the transition get authorised? If so, what did, the G, what did the GOP do? And is there a split on this? My feeling would be initially that um, they will keep Trumpism more certainly, but at some point um, Trump might be not ushered out, but possibly moved away from when it's politically convenient. I'm now really not so sure. I, I don't know whether they'll wait for every legal challenge to go by the wayside mm. and for the Trump campaign to exhaust itself financially, at, at which point there isn't really any point in keeping him um, on, or whether even they'll have the political space to do that. Because you're doing all this in a runoff election where you know a lot of Trump voters are going to be there in time now, and you need them probably to keep the Senate, right? Mm. Um so it's a really difficult balancing proposition. And another thing that plays a big part is money, right? Presumably the Trump campaign is what they are massively soliciting donations. They have a huge contact with They're trying to win every last dollar and cent out of them for legal challenges or whatever. Um, does, does Trump want more money so that he can funnel it, deal with his financial difficulties and then just to go? Or, or is he looking ready to 2024? Well, that's that's another really interesting one because Trump has set up a legal defense fund, or he has he has not set up a legal defense fund. He's been soliciting money from his supporters allegedly to fight these legal fights, but the actual money that he's raising is not going to these legal fights. Instead, it's being used to pay down his campaign debt. So you know, it's a grift, right? Like it's a con. It's always a con, but, you know, he's asking people for money for one purpose and he's spending it on a different purpose. Now, the fact that he isn't taking that money and putting it aside for, you know, to fund future legal challenges suggests to me that in his heart of hearts, he knows um, that that's not going to go anywhere for him. And he'd rather pay down his campaign debt so he's not out of pocket when it's all over. Like that's that's always Trump's priority is is, is protect himself first. Um, but but yeah, I mean, he is fundraising, but but not for his actual fight to stay president. Yeah, that would, that would um, appear absolutely correct to me. And in that case, then there is no there is basically no good reason now. And here's the thing yeah. that I think is really changing things. Yeah. But there's no good reason for Trump to come down from this now. Mm. No Democrat likes him. He's he's already basically a completely marmite figure. He always has been. But whilst Republicans and donors in some form, whether they be sort of smaller, sort of $30 a hit donors, or whether they be sort of big money donors, I think it's probably more the former than the latter in supporting him. What's the point of conceding to Joe Biden when you've already set your stall out so publicly? And as as bizarre as the Rudy Giuliani conferences are, and as bizarre as it is to have Sidney Powell get called out by Tucker Carlson for, <laughs> not, for, for refusing to give evidence, um, you don't, you're so far in, you can't really get out, right? Yeah. People won't start loving you because 
you you called Joe Biden and you conceded after yeah. doing this one. So where is his where is his jumping pad or whatever? I yeah. don't really see it. And Trump is the sort of personal personality to just keep on doing something because he's already done it, because he can't see any different or because he's maybe internally too embarrassed um, to give up. That was like a large part of his presidency. So the really scary issue basically is um, what if he keeps on doing this and there's no reason to believe he won't past December into say January? Yeah. Like, I, like maybe, okay, you could have a certification after the Electoral College meets. But even then, that's still nearly a month off from now. So a lot of transition time lost. Um, it'll be way more than 2,000 in any case. And go on. So, yeah, it's, it, you're, you're right. It's, it's, there's the, so there's the, what is Donald Trump going to do? And then there's a separate question of how does actual government power transfer itself, right? So Donald Trump will never concede. So the question is, does uh, Emily, what's her face, the the GAO woman Emily who's Murphy. Emily Murphy, she's the GAO secretary. She just has to certify um, the transition. If if the electoral college meets, and she does still not choose to certify that election. Um, then, okay, that's bad. <laughs> it's problematic. As you say, there are practical things to do with, um, you know, security briefings to do with, there's even a thing about, apparently world leaders have been sending messages of congratulations to the Biden, to the Biden campaign through the state department and the state department's refusing to forward those things on. All of these things are bad. Joe Biden needs some of this stuff to prepare and he's got transition funds, but let's say that doesn't happen. Look forward on the 20th of January by automatic operation of the Constitution, Donald Trump is no longer president. N nothing, nothing else that anyone can do can change that fact. <laughs> like he's done. Um, and I think I just want to spend a minute talking about why you and I are so confident when we say this, that there is no path for Trump to to overturn the result, because I realize they talk a very scary game. And I just want to run through the mechanisms that he is trying and why they won't be successful. And I'm not just saying, I'm not saying don't worry about it. I'm saying they won't be successful. Uh -huh. So first of all, um, Trump has gone to the courts. Um, so far, his, he's been roundly rejected by um, court hearings up and down the country. So I think he's now won two court cases out of and lost 31 or 32. And the reason he keeps losing, either either the courts get get thrown out um, because they're not valid on their face or um, the, the hearing, you know, the judge will rule on the facts and rule in favor of Democrats. The reason that keeps happening is because Republicans are showing up without a set of facts to argue. They're showing up without any evidence of wrongdoing. Um, and so that there's nothing for the judge to rule on. The second thing that's happening over and over again is that the, um, the they're coming in and even if they were to win these cases, which they're currently losing, the, the outcome of those court cases would not make much of a difference, right? So, for example, in Pennsylvania, there's been a lot of arguments and disputes about 
uh, um, ballots that might have arrived after election day. Mm. Well, there's only a few thousand votes that came in after election day, and 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 Biden's ahead there by I think he's up to over eighty thousand votes in Pennsylvania. It wouldn't matter. He's losing these cases anyway. But even if he were not losing them, it wouldn't matter. So the court is off limits for him. And a lot of people said, oh, what about the Supreme Court? Can he go to the Supreme Court and get the six to three right, you know, far right majority, throw it to him? But the Supreme Court needs a case, even if they were purely corrupt and had no desire to operate in the public interest whatsoever, they still formally need a case that someone can bring that if they ruled on it in the right way would have the the outcome that Trump desires. And there isn't one because he would have to have summarily overturned in so many states that any one case can't make that difference because of the way it's. So that's, let's leave the courts aside. I think the courts are not going to work. Then he's got this thing about trying to get states to refuse to certify the results. Um, well, as we've seen, he's attempted to do that. It hasn't been successful because these you know states are mostly staffed by um, people who do their jobs well, um, and and people have been doing their jobs. If they wanted to intervene politically, the argument that state legislatures could overturn the outcome is based on a completely flawed understanding of how things work because the constitution gives the state legislatures the power to determine how it allocates its electoral votes. But the way they do that under the law is by setting election laws, which they've done. They don't get to change the election laws after the election. Um, and that's that's pretty clear and pretty kind of robustly understood as a constitutional principle that, you know, they set the laws and so forth. So there just isn't like if the if the if the the, the state legislatures were to change, the law, they can only change it going forward. They can't change it retroactively. That's not how the law works. So, again, Trump can ask for this, but he will not get it. <laughs> unless there is a military coup like this kind of legislative coup that he's trying for isn't going to work what he would need is an actual power overthrow of the u.s government because that's his that's his only remaining option um and if you're worried about that i would just say the military does not like this guy like he's not that popular with the military um and I think, you know, he's been making moves within the Pentagon that have concerned a lot of people. I understand why people are concerned about that. But ultimately, um, the U.S. military has an affirmative obligation. They, they are, Their allegiance is formally to the office, is to the Constitution, not to the office. So Trump can't give them orders once he's no longer president. And on the 20, after the 20th of January, he is no longer president. So he has no authority to order the U.S. military to do anything. So anyway, I just thought it was worth running through that because I realize it's scary out there and we should be worried, concerned. It is definitely damaging to the Republic um, in the long term for the president to behave in this way. Um, But right now there is no mechanism that I can see that would keep Trump in office past January. I think it's a perfect summation of why basically one way or another Joe Biden is going to be the next president. As I said earlier, I think the the real difference makers are when does a transition start? How does Trump leave? Yeah. And do any of those diehards ever really Because you have plenty of people who 
being Barack Obama wasn't a legitimate president, right? But just not like this. Yeah. They weren't literally. Even the Tea Party right, even the Tea Party, they didn't like him. Um, they indulged in plenty of awful racist attacks on him. But even Donald Trump believed Barack Obama was the president. Like even Sarah Palin believed Barack Obama was the president. They were protesting against their president. A lot of these people don't even believe Biden is actually going to occupy the office of the White House. The, you know, plenty of people don't recognise the federal government, but not on a scale like this. And it's a different thing having people um, in disparate rural areas of the country um, believing that. As an example, I'm not attacking rural areas. It's different having people in certain small groups believing that. When that becomes part of the fabric of one of the only two parties that can supply a president, that's a whole different ballgame. That, and that, I think, will be the scariest um, area to run down, basically, for Biden in the next couple of years. And this is where I think the behaviour of, quote-unquote, mainstream, or let's say non-Trump Republicans um, in leadership is very scary. Because traditionally party members party you know party enthusiasts if you will they take their cues from the leadership within their own party so if if there's a disagreement uh, you know between the leadership of their party and another member of their party over time if the you know let's say Mitch McConnell and all the republicans in the senate were to clearly state the fact that Joe Biden has been elected president and operate on that basis Historically, you would have expected that even if there was dispute amongst uh, amongst Republicans, that the signaling power of lots of Republicans saying this in a unified way would be powerful. So why isn't Mitch McConnell doing that? Um, well, twofold reasons. He thinks it's in his political best interest to keep quiet about this. He calculates perhaps that Georgia, the Georgia runoff will go better for him if he thinks this dispute is still alive. Maybe he's right about that. I don't know. But also they're terrified of Donald Trump because they no longer run the Republican Party. He does. And with Donald Trump as the kind of the person who the base turn to and follow more so than them, they have very little power within their party anymore. And that's not a very viable situation for, you know, long run, long run American democratic legitimacy. I don't know what happens once Donald Trump is gone. Does he carry on as the like shadow emperor of this uh, of this peculiar coalition of, of right wing kooks that he's assembled? I just don't know. Maybe he runs in 24. <laughs> I think actually on that note, um, he is an eight to one chance with us to win in 2024 it, i'm just the saying, nomination or the or the outright outright yeah. um it really would not be the most shocking thing i seen politically if he was to run away in 2024 yeah. I, I really don't think it's outside the rouse possibility mm. um i don't think it's outside the rouse possibility that a fairly sizable cohort of the current gop congressional members um, still back him with the stars, even through January. Yeah. Um, plenty will believe their votes count on it. Um, and there's evidence that it does. And I think plenty will also believe it can give them a leg up to run for something big in the future mm. off the back of, say, the Trump trade. And if, and if Trump wasn't to run, 
then I really wouldn't be absolutely amazed if Don Jr., for example. God help, God help us. Uh, it's a God help, it's a God help yeah. situation, but he's been prepping for it. He's been essentially yeah. campaigning as a political candidate um, for four years. And he and Ivanka don't poll terribly by public figure standards in the, in the year 2020. They don't poll terribly. So it's something to think about because we are already getting inquiries. We have had to cut the odds on Donald Trump running right. again. Um, from 16 to 12s now to 8 to 1. Are you taking to go shorter? Have you uh, have you set odds on Ivanka? Yes, we have odds on Ivanka running and winning in 2024 um and they are 33 to 1. That's still far too far too uh plausible. <laughs> far too possible. <laughs> who do you have uh, who do you have as the best uh the top democratic nominee candidates? Is is Kamala top of the ticket? Kamala Harris is top of the ticket. Yeah. Step two shots over Joe Biden, four to one. Um, generally speaking, it's an age thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The market believes that Biden is a one-term president. I think Biden thinks that Biden is a one-term term president. So. Uh, yeah, so um, Harris is expected to run, and quite a lot of people will take a strong position because they will get a seven, 72, essentially, about what will be no better than an evens chance in four years. Yeah. Um, and again, that's a big disparity if you're willing to have your money tied up for all that time. Um, that looks to be a bit more of a two-horse race, um, generally speaking. And I think it's probably because most of the contenders for this year's field would expect to be close to, if not in the cabinet. Um, yeah. They're at least tipped. Um, we know that Buttigieg is almost in there. He probably has a foot or two in the door um people think that's a good idea for warren to be in the cabinet um i don't know necessarily about where the progressive slate is in terms of cabinet positions i don't think it's going to be that rosy um but you could see Buttigieg being in the cabinet you could see warren being in the cabinet you could see klobuchar being in the cabinet i mean presumably sanders wouldn't run again in 2024 this is presumably the position um, I mean, the market assumes that. Um, and there is a bit of a gap now because Sanders is seen as the face of that movement, but increasingly the likes of Ocasio-Cortez yeah. and Rashida Tlaib, etc., are, are, are coming to take that mantle. The only issue is that's a huge age gap drop-off, right? You're going from Sanders to somebody who I think will only just be allowed to run in 2024 and even then i'm not terribly sure um yeah she'll be really close she'll either just just be of age when she's when the when inauguration happens or not um i, I mean you know so for somebody now who is 31 um it, it's it's probably I mean, it's going to be definitely i think too tight yeah it kind of it depends when it depends when her birthday is doesn't it <laughs> absolutely well it's october 13th so <laughs> yeah so, um, so it's so it's tricky for the let's call them the DSA left, yeah. Because you you've had a lot of successful policy initiatives. Um, you know, states are voting to legalize marijuana and for fifteen dollar minimum wage, and um, they're also voting to roll back sort of these really conservative laws and principles that you know you can. You can imagine telling somebody in 1990 the minimum wage for $15. Yeah. Or marijuana will be legal 
or decriminalising this state. Um, but there's a disconnect between having a candidate to take that idea through, namely because the Republican Party and the right in general has been so efficient yeah. at creating a scare story around what progressivism yeah. means. And, and there's also a problem, I think, just quickly before we jump in, of definition, right? And this marriage between policy, which is basically... Police departments don't need Humvees when our teachers have to buy food for their students and defund the police, which is very easy to translate into if the robber comes to your house at 3am, nobody will be there to help you. And I think we saw that big time in 2020, at least yeah. in some of these down-ballot races. I mean, from a purely policy point of view, the best case scenario for the Democratic Socialists of America might be um, getting their policy through on on Biden's agenda, because yeah. that's a much more plausible route, arguably, at least as the current American political configuration is, than winning power directly at a national level, I would I would argue. Listen, we're we're coming to the end of our time. Before we wrap up, have you got a few minutes to play the gut check game? Let's do it. Let's play the gut check game. Let's do it. So for those who are new to the podcast, I have in front of me in my trusty Red Sox baseball cap, some little bits of paper into on, onto which I have written uh, some quotes or sayings I've heard um, in political life this week. I'm going to pull them out of the hat and William and I will just react to them. Simple as that. Um, here's one. This is from Kevin Williamson, who's written in the National Review, a famously conservative newspaper, um, in an article called The Dumbest Coup. And he says, quote, rather than ask whether conspiracy kookery is relevant to Republican politics at this moment, it would be better to ask if there is anything else to Republican politics at this moment. And maybe there is, but not much. Um, so my gut check is that for the current Republican Party in its form, that's true. But it's true because it's convenient. Um, the president's hold up. You can't really bring him down from this pedestal, which he's put his election results on. Um, you can get plenty of money out of it, right? People will donate. And you probably need it to keep the energy through for the Georgia runoffs. So they'll do that. Then they'll, they'll reevaluate their position. Um, but they won't repudiate Trumpism. And I think the Trump family will still be an influence in the Republican Party for the next couple of years or so. Yeah. I think there isn't really a viable Republican policy formation process in place. Like, there's no there's no ideas bank because so many of the think tanks and the, you know, newspapers and like the, like National Review, but 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 others have been taken over the media establishment is now basically one american news network and fox <laughs> that speaks to republicans um there just isn't a lot happening behind the crankery right like all this trump stuff is happening but but it's not like there are you know serious party officials out there somewhere that are coming up with a health care plan they they've had years to come up with a health care plan and they haven't so i think that the theory that there's nothing behind the curtain it, seems true and i think we should be concerned about that even if you don't like republican ideas it's probably better that they have some <laughs> mm. uh, um here's one uh this is a washington post headline that i came across today it just says trump uses power of presidency to try to overturn the election short sweet and on the money and i wonder if things would be 
different if we'd had more of those headlines in newspapers that were willing to basically be truthful but brutal about the situation we have. Um, it, it's been a really it's been a really confusing four years for media because the hype and interest that Trump generates has definitely um, pulled a couple of media out of, out of a tough spot. I'm thinking about the New York Times and their massive subscriber increase, but I think the same is true of the Post. Um, but also it's really pressured um, the norms of editing. It's really pressured the norms of being a sub-editor. It's really pressured um, those standards, which I don't think have moved fast enough for the age and that's a good example yeah i think that's right it's interesting i had a I, I think back on between the 2016 election and inauguration day i was invited to speak to a conference of tv news editors for itv um and they asked me kind of you know oh what's what's it going to be like covering donald trump and i said well look and they, they said you know is it is it going to be difficult because he'll be really offensive and i said well he will be really offensive but that's not the main problem that you will have as news gatherers the main problem that you will have as news reporters is covering a president of the united states who has no commitment to factual truth um and you need to think right now about how you're going to do that because you're all as most people are accustomed to taking presidential statements as face value as at least representing an attempt to speak, speak to truth and everybody in the room kind of looked really confused at the time and did nothing about it and <laughs> to me I, I i feel like the press are still just getting their heads around what that means um so i was happy to see that washington post headline i think they i think they nailed it absolutely it'll be interesting to see what the coverage is of a biden administration um because a lot of people and i need to credit um I believe it's Edie from Logically.ai who said, um, who, who, sorry, alerted me to a piece that makes a very essential point. Um, we need to keep fact-checking the Biden administration. There might be, because of the fact that Trump was Trump, his administration um, lied so easily with so little care, um, there might be a sort of lulled for security in the sense that because you have an administration that will attempt to do things normally yeah that sort of fall into the warm blanket of being able to trust whatever these guys say uh, on record or on background when actually every presidential administration as we've all known um has had its problems with the truth I, I think that's fair. I think we shouldn't be lulled into. I think one of the things that we should have learned, but probably won't have learned, we'll probably all go back to usual to, to, to bad habits again as soon as we can. One of the things that we should have learned is that the appearance of normalcy is not normalcy, right? Yeah. That that you know um, that it's possible to like Mike Pence, right? Mike Pence is. Mike Pence is the pre-Trump Republican Party, and he's completely on board with Trump's agenda. He just puts a happier face on it. <laughs> like, he makes noises about protecting democratic in integrity and then completely backs an illegitimate, undemocratic process. So let's not assume that just because people adhere to adhere to the appearance of norms that they're necessarily doing the right thing or or speaking truth. Here's one. Um, oh, this is this is a terrifying one. Uh, this is a report from ABC Eyewitness News in Chicago talking about um, new court hearings that have come to life 
come to light in relation to a kidnapping plot against uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitner. It says, quote, new filings claim there was a plan B in the Michigan that that, that the Michigan militiamen had drawn up that involved a takeover of the Michigan Capitol building by 200 combatants who would stage a week long series of televised executions of public officials. And according to government documents now on file in Lower Michigan Court, there was also a plan C, burning down the state house, leaving no survivors. It is astonishing that that is believable, that that is something you can read nowadays and not think it was some sort of hoax story or, or not basically think it was sort of a setup. We hear that now, we absolutely believe it. And we know there are people out there willing to make it happen, which is absolutely, um, it is basically absolutely unbearable in the situation. Um, to be honest with you, and I don't mean to be casual when I say this, I'm quite relieved and in a way, in an awful way, a bit surprised no, no harm or, or no attempted plot managed to succeed against Whitman. Yet. Just, given the, just given the sheer volume of what was being plotted against her, and it wasn't just one plot, it was multiple plots from multiple groups. I'm sure some of them well-funded, some of them very sophisticated. Um, and, and we're lucky, in a sense, actually, that nothing did happen. We're, we're lucky that nothing did happen, because we've seen um, in the past, especially sort of from the 80s and the 90s, that sort of decade of... of multiple awful acts of domestic terrorism that people can are willing to go through with this sort of stuff right um we have seen entire federal buildings just be taken apart by one person in the past i just don't doubt there were people willing to do that sort of thing to Whitmer, and it's simply appalling and frankly we should all be grateful that she's safe now and she made it through the selection period because there are plenty of people willing to do that and worse i'm sure yeah, I just, I'm not superstitious, but I'm just touching wood now just in case, because yeah. um, any any moment now, the truth could, you know, the, 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 the fact of her um, survival and the relative lack of violence so far could change. Um, I think it is notable that there that we have been so far successful at stopping these violent plots i think the thing is for me i'm old enough to remember the previous militia movement back in the 90s under president clinton there were as you say domestic terrorist incidents at that time the difference to me is that at that time it was clear that everyone in the federal government was unified in an attempt to prevent such things and stop them whereas now it feels like you've got law enforcement and at a federal level, working very hard to prevent these types of things. And the president actively egging them on. I mean, mm. he tweeted, liberate Michigan after the plot was after the plot was revealed. Um, I'm not sure whose side he's on. And that feels weird, not only to think, but also to say that I, I say that out loud and I sound like a kook to myself because to say that you're not confident the president of the United States opposes domestic terrorism sounds wacky. And yet I'm not as confident as I should be. So that's not great. Few couple months to go. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And, the, and that's the sort of terrifying thing about this, which is that it's gone on for so long, but the most dangerous phase 
is still yet to come. Um, yeah. In a way, I said this previously, I'm sure, but the hardest part of the election is always going to be the aftermath. It's always yeah. going to be having it and having the aftermath. And um, touch wood out there that the high-profile officials who have been targeted are able to stay safe. Um, it's not something, frankly, we can take for granted now in, the high, in such a political situation. Yes, indeed. Right, let me end on on this note. This is a quote um, issued this week by Mitt Romney, former uh, former Republican presidential candidate himself and the current Republican senator for the state of Utah. He says, quote, The president has now resorted to overt pressure on state and local officials to subvert the will of the people and overturn the election. It is difficult to imagine a worse, more undemocratic action by a sitting American president. Yeah, he's right. Um, Romney is right. And I think it says a lot that um, only Romney has come out of the... Yeah. Republican senators. Um, yeah. Well, Ben Sass also made some some similar comments, but it's been it's not been enough people, by all means. No, absolutely hasn't been enough people by all means. And um, again, this is an extraordinary unprecedented period in American history. What happens at the other end? I don't think we know. I think also it says, frankly, that the GOP possibly rather than controlling and extolling the virtues of the Trump base is actually reacting to it and is probably living in fear of it. Yeah. That probably is the best explanation for what's been going on recently, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think they're hostage to their own supporters. I think that's probably the right summary. Um so I just wanna I just wanna say, you know, to Mitt Romney, like good on you. Um, I, I know that, you know, I voted against him and campaigned against him in 2012. I was working on the Obama campaign trying to defeat him. Um, but I give the man a lot of credit. He has a set of principles and he has stuck to them. I mean, he was the only Republican senator to vote in favor of impeachment, making him, by the way, historical footnote, the only senator to ever vote to impeach a president of his own party. Um, so I think you have to you have to give some respect to that. It can't have been easy. And it's very easy to sit here and, and think that we know what, that we would do the right thing. But the fact that so, so few of them are doing the right thing suggests it's not as easy as it looks. So good on him. <laughs> well done, Mitt. Congratulations for having a, an actual spine. We salute you. Well, there we go. Mitt Romney gets to salute the podcast this week. On that happy bipartisan note, thank you so much for your time, William. It's been great chatting to you. And that's it. As always, you can reach me on Twitter. I'm at KarenJR on Twitter, K-A-R-I-N-J-R. If you go to the top of my Twitter feed or indeed into the show notes of this episode, you will find a link to our uh, Democratically 2020 thanksgiving event uh which is happening on the saturday the 28th of november um that's a week from tomorrow if you're listening to this on the day the podcast launches um i hope you can join us it should be a blast if you um 
I'm normally at this point always say remind people to vote but I haven't got used to the fact that there's nothing to ask you to vote for unless you're in Georgia so if you are a Georgia voter make sure that you're registered that you've requested an absentee ballot if you plan to vote by absentee and that you're ready to vote in this election if you are not a Georgia voter then go to Georgia maybe try and help get some senators elected there um give some money do what you can um i hope all of you will have a very wonderful week i should let you know that this podcast is not associated with any other organization or entity it is just me and i wish you a very happy week <laughs>